Hello, everyone, and welcome to the In Squash podcast. Uh, I'm your host, Jerry Gibson, and today we have PSA CEO Alex Goff uh, on the show and uh, an incredible player himself back in the day. I believe he reached as high as number five in the world uh, in, when he was in his prime, which probably would have been back during the Jonathan Power, Peter Nickel, David Palmer, uh, Shabana, Darwish era. And, uh, yep, he comes on and we talk about uh, several interesting topics, uh, most of which uh, have to do with his position as CEO and uh, the initiatives and the direction that he's taken uh, the PSA since he took over as CEO in 2009. But we also take a look back at his very interesting uh, PSA pro career, which spans, as I mentioned, uh, generations of great players he's uh, there's a great youtube video of a match he played against uh, jan shir khan that's up and i really encourage uh, everyone to go and um, uh, watch that match because it just shows you how talented uh, alex was as a player um, he went through qualities in that event we talk about it a bit on the podcast and um, by the time he had reached uh, Jancher, I mean, you can just see, you can see uh, he was playing at a really high level. The met, there was really nothing in it uh, in the match. Really enjoyable uh, squash to watch. And then, um, obviously, back then, um, there weren't, a, uh, there was no squash TV, and most of the squash that, you know, if you were lucky to catch it, would have been the later rounds of events. So we weren't, uh, uh, we didn't really get to see much of all the players back then but there is some footage of Alex in there he did make it deep into a few of the draws so uh, I encourage you to go and watch some of his matches really <clears throat> really good squash uh, himself and we do talk about that uh, his playing career a bit and then we get into his role as CEO as I mentioned he took on that role in 2009 uh, before that he was COO chief, chief operating officer uh, so he, his uh, career path uh, towards the CEO, we discussed that uh, as well. Um, and in the past 10 years, uh, he's made, uh, and the PSA, uh, his team, uh, have made incredible inroads in several areas. Uh, also, he'll, he's the first to admit they have the work cut out for them in, uh, going forward in terms of the air, their goals and their vision. Uh, and that's, uh, you know, the challenges that lie ahead. He's embracing them and... Uh, uh, really uh, bodes well, I think, for squash going forward. So I know you're going to enjoy this one. Uh, PSA CEO Alex Goff. All right. Uh, well, welcome to episode 66, I believe, uh, if, I'm, if my memory is correct. It's episode 66 of the In Squash podcast. And today we have on the CEO of the PSA since 2009, uh, former top, ten, top five player in the world on the PSA himself, Commonwealth Games bronze medalist in the men's uh, singles division and world team championships uh, silver medalist for Wales. Uh, Alex Goff is my guest. Alex, great to have you on the podcast. Pleased to be here. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me on, Jerry. Yeah, great to have you. And uh, I reached out and it didn't take, uh, didn't take your team long to get back to me. So obviously you've got a well, well-oiled uh, ship over there, well-oiled machine uh, over there, uh, uh, Alex, at the PSA. Yeah, thanks very much. Yeah, the team's um, the team's going from strength to strength. We've taken on quite a few people recently, and um, yeah, it's uh, it feels a long time ago where there was only probably three or four of us at PSA. It's actually I think we're now up to sort of twenty plus 
So it's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's going pretty well. But it's I always thought that it would uh, it would cause less work, but it's causing causing more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can remember. Uh, I was at the uh, Super Series uh, final in Dubai last. Uh, I guess it was late June, um, and I, I couldn't help but notice how many uh, representatives from PSA that that were there. Uh, so, uh, and obviously the event went well, and that's part of the reason why I would imagine these events are going uh, so well. You've got the team in place to make it more efficient, I guess. Yeah, sure. I mean, one of the main things I think the main developments over the past well, probably 10 years has been the, has been the media output and the squash TV output. Um, I guess, yeah, I don't know. We'll probably come on to that later on, but it's it certainly, it's certainly been a, right at the sort of crux of everything that we've done um, in the last 10 years or certainly since I've been on board. That's great. Yeah. Now I just like to say like, like the season, uh, the 2018, 19 uh, campaigns gotten off to a, a very great, a very uh, uh, intriguing start. You've got, you had a new, you have a new platinum event in Cairo, the black ball. Uh, the TOC was again, uh, highly successful. The launch of the challenger series has really uh, been a great new initiative, I think. And now you've got the million dollar world uh, open in Chicago coming up in late February. So how happy are you with the, the start of the new campaign? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've been delighted with it really. Um, as you, as you mentioned, the black ball open was a, a first time event. Um, first time and they went straight in at platinum level and, and, and the team over there did a fantastic job. Um, it's an incredible club. It's not often we have a, a platinum level event in within a club. Um, and it looked great. The team was brilliant, and I think that all of the guys enjoyed it tremendously. Um, and actually, we're just about to have the the women's edition coming up now um, in March, which is at the same sort of time as the it's at the same week actually as Canary Wharf. Okay. Uh, so that, so we're, we're we're in preparations for that now. Um, obviously, with the amount of players that Egypt have got, and you know the depth that they've got, it's it's great that we're able to kind of return to Cairo, Cairo and Egypt. Um, a little bit more consistently than we have over the last few years. Um, I think I know the players are <clears throat> certainly the Egyptian players are really excited about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it was quite. Uh, it was a great event on the men's side the first time around. Uh, you had the likes of um, uh, Mustafa uh, Av, was Av, Amsel. Was that his name? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, he got through uh, some early round matches, and then uh, Kareem uh, Al Gawad. I mean, he came out of. Uh, didn't come out of nowhere, but he ended up winning the event and playing some uh, incredible squash. Uh, really exciting stuff. Oh, he certainly did. Yeah, Kareem's Kareem on his day when he's when he's playing like that is is almost unplayable. Mm-hmm. Um, against uh, Mohamed Al Shabagi um, in the semi certainly was 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 almost perfection. Um, he seems to he he kind of went away after he got to after he won the world championships. He kind of. He fell away a little bit. Um, I don't know whether it was just physicality or just not training as hard or, or trouble with sort of injuries or whatnot. But when he certainly gets his when he gets his body in shape and he's and he's focused, he's yeah, he's 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 a phenomenal player and uh, and really exciting to watch. Yeah, we were talking uh, just before we actually started this uh, this podcast. We were talking about playing squash, and you had mentioned. Uh, you just played recently and not able to walk for uh, for a few days after. Well, after that match against after his final match, I went out and I was exci- all excited to play. And uh, yeah, it took me about a week to recover uh, after trying to replicate uh, his game. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're definitely getting too old for too old. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, they, yeah. 
Well, uh, what I'd like to do, just to, uh, I'd like to go back a little bit, if you don't mind, Alex, for, uh, for a lot of the younger generation, I hate to say it, but they, they may not know, they probably know who you are, but don't, don't know all about where you came from. Uh, for many of the younger generation, they might not be familiar with uh, the top five uh, player in the world, Alex uh, Goff. So you played uh, against the likes, of, you played against several world number ones uh, dating back to three, I think three generations of squash, uh, Jan Khan, Peter Nickel, uh, uh, Nick Matthew, and uh, I guess Jonathan Power, and uh, a 17-year-old, which is I saw on uh, YouTube, 17-year-old uh, Mohammed El Sherbagi. Uh, so obviously your your competitive years, I'd say, were probably at their peak during the JP uh, Nickel uh, rivalry era. Era. Uh, you com- you competed well against them. So, what was it like to compete uh, against the likes of J.K. Peter and uh, and J.P. and who gave you the most trouble, and who did you have the uh, the most success against? I guess. Mm, and that's an interesting list when you put it like that. Um, and actually, it'd be remiss to sort of remiss to not not include Gregory in there, Gregory Gautier, and also oh, yeah. uh, Shabana. Shabana, yeah. I mean, yeah. It was Palmer and. And, and yeah, Palmer, Linku. I mean, the, the, that, the list of those kind of, they, and they all went to world number one at various <laughs> times. Um, yeah. Had various wins. I think I remember going through the list once of actually figuring out who I'd beaten in my time and who I hadn't beaten. And, and Jancha, Jancha I never managed. Actually, I did beat Jancha in the Super Series, um, but it was in a group match. So I don't know whether I can lay claim to that one. A win um, is a win, yeah. A win is a win, yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I remember <laughs> at one point, at one point, I think I was fourteen ten. It was when we used to play to fifteen. I was fourteen ten up in, I think, the first or one of the games that I did win. And he kind of, he, he kind of mumbled under his breath. He, he was, he was going, serve down, serve down. Player's head. I turn around to him. I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah, he was, saying, he was saying your serve was down, or he was telling you to serve down. Telling you to serve down, which I thought was pretty extraordinary. Um, <laughs> he was he was actually a pretty funny character. He did have a really quite a funny sense of humour. He was a good guy. Yeah, um, I love that anecdote, uh, Simon Park's anecdote. You've heard it, the one about uh, Stephen Meads. Oh yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Many times, yes. Friend of mine, actually, we trained a lot together, kind of towards the end of of, uh, of my playing days, and uh, yeah, I used to hang out with him quite a lot. Um, but yeah, going back to who was the most difficult, I think I actually think I managed to sneak a win against every single player, um, apart from one, and the one was uh, Gregory Gautier. Right, he he around the time he came came on the scene. I think I first played Greg as a, I think he was eighteen, and he snuck a win three two which was the closest actually I got <laughs> because <laughs> yeah. after, after that, I got nowhere near the guy. Um, and having played, like you say, the likes of, you know, Power, Nickel, Shibana, Thierry, Palmer, you know, there was, you know, at one, at one time or another, I managed to sneak a win against, you know, every single one of them. Right. Um, and I got nowhere near Greg. What was it about his game that, uh, that caused you he, trouble? He just, I think he just—he's one of those sort of players that that physically, physically, when he just decided that he wasn't going to lose a rally, you just, there was nothing I could do. I just didn't think there was anything I could do to break him down. Um, and the only real kind of weakness that the guy had at any stage really was his kind of was the mental side of things. But 
you had to be able to compete with him physically for such a long period of time. You know, the way kind of Nick, the way Nick ended up breaking him down was, yeah. was really through the physical side to the point where Greg, Greg's head would go, you know, it would literally just fall <laughs> off. Yeah. And then, and then, and then Nick would make it look quite comfortable and he had a patch of doing that. Um, but when he, but if you couldn't get him to that point, I, I, it was next to impossible to break down. Um, and it's, I mean, it's such a shame that he's injured at the minute because he, yeah. he would still be, you know, he's still going to, he's still wanting to play and compete, you know, um, and he still looks in great physical shape. So hopefully, uh, hopefully when he comes back from, uh, from the sort of the, the, bone I think he had a small bone break in his knee this time um hopefully when he comes back he'll he'll still be amongst the even amongst the top guys still oh definitely he well he was playing some great squash uh the just before he had the he had the one injury the ad I think it was an adductor uh, uh injury yeah. and then he had the knee uh issue but um now I remember uh seeing footage of you play uh, Jonathan Power a couple of times and that was an intriguing matchup because you as I, as I discovered, you, you're not one to back down from sort of banter, head-to-head banter on, on the court either. So I'm just wondering how, how uh, those matches, uh, what, how, how, what uh, sort of, how did they play out in terms of the banter or the, the head games that Power would generally play? You wouldn't put up with that, would you? Um, I used to find it good fun, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was always interesting to see what, you know, which Jonathan Powell would turn up and, and, you know, some days, there was a couple of days where he's, again, he was just unplayable. Um, and there was other days where you think, you know, you know, you'd know quite early on that you were in with a shout, you know, his, something wasn't right and his stringing wasn't right or his wrist wasn't right or his headband wasn't, you know, there was always something <laughs> yeah. you, could, you could start to talk to him about. Um, yeah. And, and he loved, he, he kind of just got so involved in all of those things as well. You know, the, the random, and he won't mind me saying this, but the random suddenly, I remember one day he got cramp in his wrist. We'd been playing for about half an hour. Yeah. Um, and and it's in his usual inimitable way, Power would like grab hold of his wrist and scream at the top of his lungs as though he'd just been shot, basically. We'd <laughs> um, have to wait for a few minutes and wait for it to calm down. And, and But it was that's tough to play because you, you know, you're there talking to yourself thinking, right, you know, concentrate, concentrate, you know, make sure, you know, make sure it doesn't get to you. And then two seconds later, we'd come back on and, you know, choppy to bits. So it, it was, it was never, it was never straightforward. Yeah. Um, but you know, there were other times where, you know, you'd get a little chink in the armor or, you know, I'd be moving well enough to, to cover the stuff he was trying to do. And again, kind of got the odd, got the odd win. Um, but yeah, again, it's similar to Greg on his, on his day when he decided that he was going to be too good. He was, he was just incredible. Yeah. Um, the, the, the range of shots and the deception and how much work he'd make you do was, uh, was just too much. You know, it was just, it was so skillful. Yeah. Um, and I was very much used to absolutely love the, the power nickel rivalry where well, they were good times. They were, they were, they were good years and they were both so young and, and raw at that especially when the rivalry uh, started to just started, they were young and raw. Peter, not so much, but Jonathan, uh, I think. It, it was, yeah, the, I think the fascination for me was the fact that um, Pete was number one, um, but he, but whenever it was against power, he had this, he had this period of time where he just, power was just winning really comfortably and quickly as well. Um, and then Pete had to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure it out, almost just break down his game, just break down every different, every different aspect of it and figure out what, what he was going to do 
to beat Jonathan because he just there was patches where he was just getting nowhere near him. Yeah. Um, and he's and he's so determined, and he, and he actually did do that, and then. I think brought the head head heads back to pretty much level. Whereas at one point, Jonathan would have been miles ahead. Yeah, um, yeah that would have was, been about ninety seven ish. I think at that time, wouldn't it? Yeah, ninety seven, ninety eight. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. power, I think. I think when we played a um, when we played a tournament of champions, the one that wasn't in Grand Central in ninety six was when Power beat. I think he won the tournament. Craig Rowland. Beat. Craig yeah. Rowland, I think. Right. Yeah. No. Yeah. Craig Rowland beat Jancha, and then and then and then Jonathan went on to beat Craig, and then actually yeah. won. He won a load of tournaments after that. It yeah. Just almost from nowhere, really. Um, so it was that was certainly an interesting time. It was. No, I'm sort of. Uh, I digress because I want to talk more about you. Now, I um, I uh, like I mentioned earlier, I did watch your match um, against Jancha, which would have been uh, that that's on YouTube there. Uh, the Al Haram event, uh, 19, uh, I don't know what year it was, 96, 96. Yeah. And, uh, like I said to you earlier, I was really impressed with your game and it, it seemed to me like you, you know, you, you were battling point for point with Jancher. So back at that, at that time, obviously you've played them a, a few times. Uh, what was it like to play the genius of, uh, Jancher Khan? Yeah, I mean that was it was it was it was the, just one of the most amazing experiences. That whole event was was pretty much one of my sort of favourite tournaments of all time, really. Um, mm. Mainly on the basis that I think I was probably ranked about twenty eight in the world at the time and in in the qualifying, so I'd actually qualified oh, yeah, for that. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Um, and then I was, I was I was trying to look back. I was trying to remember, and I think the wins to get to Gentry, I think I'd beaten Nick Taylor in the qualifying. To then beat, I think it was Hilly Power and then Brett Martin to get oh. to the to get the there semis. You go. So it was, <laughs> um, who's who? <laughs> so, by the, yeah, so by the time I played Jancha, that was my sixth match. Yeah, um, yeah. You, you know, said pretty, in the interview at the end that you were pretty much gassed uh, in the uh, in the final oh, game. Yeah, I was. Yeah, it was. I mean, it had been a long week, but it had been a pretty exciting week. Um, so ha- ha- you know, having that experience. Yeah, I mean, goodness knows, it would have been nice to have played him a little bit fresher, but he yeah. was he was just well. I mean, you 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 were really to me. It looked like there was nothing in it in the the first two games. It was tight, and then towards the end of each game, he kind of ran away with it. But. <laughs> yeah, I think Jenkins. I think his comment, and I actually heard him. He didn't say it about my match in particular, but I did, I had heard him say before, um, in his typical <laughs> going away. Oh, I just. <laughs> Just get just get to ten all and then and then hit five winners. You know that okay. that was simplistically he saw playing anyone. Well, that was just, the beauty of his game. I think it goes uh, for a lot of people maybe unnoticed that just how skillful, just how good hand, good his hands were. Amazing, yeah, yeah. yeah. He uh, he he would just it was just so easy. It was just and that he almost kind of it was almost detrimental for the sport really when we look back at sort of you know. TV and broadcast and those sorts of things. I know we were always critical of, of not being able to see the ball much, but the main issue when you're watching Jancher is he basically is just walking around the court and he does look like oh. he's walking around the court and, and, and it just looks kind of fairly sort of pedestrian and a bit slow. But when, you, when you're playing him, it certainly doesn't feel like he's... It feels <laughs> like you're going miles an hour and, yeah. uh, you know, pace is incredible. But 
it was just so smooth and so comfortable and you know his execution of everything it sort of looked like uh, you had the right strategy uh, i think your your tempo you seem to be playing a very high at a very high pace and throwing in uh, yeah. you know some offensive shots in there and that that was probably your strategy uh, unfortunately uh, i guess you need a bit more gas in the tank in order to keep that up for, uh, <laughs> a lot more <laughs> but uh, it was it was, yeah. it was certainly fun playing him now, uh, Alex, I'd like to get on, move on to uh, you know what you're doing now. You're the CEO of the PSA, obviously, since 2009, a huge role, and uh, one that you uh, I, obviously you've built towards uh, before taking it on. So, how did this uh, take shape for you, and what was sort of the the career tra trajectory for you, and uh, in terms of where where the seed was planted, I guess, to uh, ultimately run the PSA? Sure. Um... I mean, going back to kind of, I think going back to when I played sort of when I was on the tour, I, you know, I'd finished, I'd finished university in, I guess, I guess mid 93. Um, and my, my, my plan of attack was just to play for a couple of years and kind of see how it went. Um, you know, I never had any kind of ideas of grandeur or anything. So it was just, and I just enjoyed playing. So, you know, my success on the tour relatively early meant that you know I could continue and things like lottery funding turned up so, so I ended up basically sort of becoming really quite involved in the tour and PSA for probably for the next kind of 10 years um, and, and around about I think if my memory serves right around about 2002 kind of got a little bit I guess a bit disgruntled with how the tour was was with how the tour was being run or you know I mean at the end of the day PSA is a players association mm -hmm. to the players it's it's the players are part and parcel of, you know they're on the board they're voted onto the board of directors and and are involved in decision making so and myself myself Graham Riding Tony Hands at the time and a couple of others kind of got ourselves voted onto the onto the PSA board to see if we could basically make a bit of difference and actually affect a bit of change um I think we'd had a couple of years where we actually just didn't even have a world championship and that was right in the middle of right in the middle of you know, sort of my and Pete Nichols and Powers kind of careers, which was, which was just not acceptable, really. Um, so I ended up then just on the board, probably for about well, it was for about five, five and a half years, um, until basically the body started to break down and started to get too old to compete with all the youngsters and the you know the likes of Gregory Gauthier and so forth. So, <laughs> yeah. and it was time to then it was time to sort of move, you know, move on and, and figure out what else I was going to do. Um, but I'd been doing so much in terms of, you know, day to day, trying to help out really from a board perspective and actually ended up almost working a couple of hours a day, you know, whilst, whilst playing. And actually by the time it came around to stopping, felt like I had a decent handle on, you know, what was needed and, and, and where PSA, you know, could potentially go to. Um, so it was, a, it was a bit more of a natural move to not necessarily jump straight into a CEO role, but, you know, hopefully I jumped basically into a COO role, like an operating officer kind of role. Um, to, to, well, that's to, where you started, right? Uh, yeah, that's right. And we brought in around about that time. So it was June, June 2008, when I basically sort of hung up the rackets and, and then sort of moved into a staff position. Um, we brought in a, or, or the board at the time. I kind of had to step out of all of that. The board at the time brought in a, a new CEO. Um, a guy called Richard Graham, um, and yeah, the the rest is kind of history from there, really. Yeah, um, it didn't quite work out with Richard. So basically, come the come the February, come the February '09, I kind of got thrown into the 
thrown into the hot seat. <laughs> yeah. that was, so that was that was that was how it came about. And yeah, it's yeah. I guess, well, I guess pretty so much bang on comfort there for the for the players knowing that uh, one of their one of their peers. Uh, I guess it's not so far removed from the from the tours now uh, heading up the tour. Yeah, sure. It was like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't the most tra- straightforward of transition. Um, you know, I still, I still had a lot of sort of, I still knew nearly everyone. I mean, at that time, you know, everyone around me were people that I'd competed with. So on that front, it was, it was difficult to try and almost disassociate myself from being a player into being this kind of, um, you know, fairly, fairly important position or fairly responsible position. Yeah. Um, and and we knew we had to change things pretty drastically to to be able to move forward. So we took a few kind of risks in that in that first kind of year or so. Um, and and with the sort of launch of we basically launched Squash TV about a year or so after that. So we launched Squash TV right at the start of two thousand and ten. Mm-hmm. Um, really tried to get the broadcast and the media side going. Um, so I think I think I started it with jet black hair, and then by the end of two thousand and ten, it was completely great. <laughs> They're like Barack all, Obama. The stresses and strains of, <laughs> um, you know, and we knew we had to invest. So we took some, we took some sort of, you know, we invested a, a hell of a lot in that broadcast, yeah. you know, without an awful lot of income guaranteed at the start. Um, and it's, it's now kind of proving itself, but it, but it did take a couple of years really for it to, for it to, for it to work out. Um, it's, but yeah, it's, it's it, now it is really at the center of nearly everything we do. Yeah, for sure. It, it's a highly successful and a lot of, I mean, the, the entire squash community is really, appre- I think, appreciative of the fact that a lot of it, you, you do have the early rounds that are free uh, for us to watch. And then, so, so that's fantastic as well. Now, now you've, uh, you've assembled, obviously assembled, it seems to me, a, a team uh, within the PSA, a team of your peers almost, uh, including the likes of uh, Lee Beachel, Tim Garner, uh, even a, a Lee Drew. Um, so, how important was it for you to have, or was this by design? And how important was it for you to have these guys uh, on board with you to help uh, steer the ship? Um, yeah. So, within uh, one of the big, I think probably the biggest change outside of outside of the broadcast was was in April April 2015 when when the when we kind of merged with the WSA. Um, Mm-hmm. And that was a big part, part and parcel of that was uh, was Tommy Burden. Um, he'd been brought in to kind of almost rescue the women's tour at that time because it was it, it was going it was going backwards at a reasonable sort of rate. Um, and and so outside of sort of, sort of the setup at the minute is kind of myself and Lee Beachel and, and Tommy kind of heading up that kind of management team. Um, and then like obviously you mentioned like I say Tim and Lee Drew. Um, from within the squash world but actually outside of that now when when sort of when we look around the office and whatnot there's there's probably about 70 or 80 percent now of 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 sort of you know new people that have come in to to work for psa that that have nothing to do with squash and never 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 really watched before so other than maybe the sort of the the you know those senior management positions everyone else is actually kind of pretty new to the sport to be honest um and very quickly turn into kind of super fans, which is that's what it feels like to us anyway. Um, certainly, the squash TV sort of crew and the production guys that they they get fully immersed in it and, and absolutely love the sport. So it's yeah. Whilst whilst there are still a few kind of 
through and through squash people in there actually now it's uh it, it's it's almost we're actually almost in the minority believe it or not <laughs> right on. and how, how does that manifest itself in terms of uh the the what what goes on and what you try to achieve is that is that by design or uh... yeah i mean it's i mean we moved to leeds one of the, one of the things that happened was we 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 moved out of cardiff um I think how many years ago now, probably several, I want to say seven or eight years ago now, seven years ago. Um, and the idea initially was that we were going to move to potentially to London to be a bit more kind of in the thick of, in the thick of the business world and for meetings and various things. Um, and we looked at costings and, and when, when we then sort of Lee Beachel and, and at the time Claudia Sherman, who was working for us, they were kind of based up towards Leeds and actually, you know, it seemed like an up and coming city and, you know, it was a hell of a lot cheaper than London. So it, so we settled on that. Um, and every, and, and everyone that sort of every new staff member that's coming in the door is just, just seems, you know, you know, really well kind of, you know, great education and great background and they've got really good skill sets. Um, you know, and mostly they just, you know, there's a lot of people that, that want to work in sport, not necessarily squash. Um, and they come from, you know, we've hired people from, we've hired people from Sky, we've hired people from Leeds, mm. Leeds United Football Club, we've hired people from Rugby League, um, so, and they've all kind of bring together their experiences from from these other sports, and I think that's why it's that's why it's um, feeling like it's a really kind of decent team that we're assembling. Right. Yeah. Now, um, now clearly, um, one of the one of your priorities uh, is the Olympic bid, which is upcoming. I believe the Paris 2024 uh, bid yeah. is upcoming. Uh, that's the next opportunity for squash. So how's uh, the bid uh, preparation going? And uh, if you don't mind, what sort of tweaks uh, have been made given uh, recent bids that, that unfortunately uh, fell short? Yeah, we're, um, it's certainly one of those ones where it's, it's almost been a different reason for every bid so far. And we're now, I believe we're now in the fourth, <laughs> fourth yeah. bid, believe it or not. Um, we've, we've been working, I think one of the big differences this time around, or what we're hoping is a big difference, is, is how closely um, PSA and WSF are working together. Um, mm. A little while ago, we signed, we signed an MOU, Memorandum of Understanding, with, with WSF, um, and put together probably somewhere in the region of about 20 different objectives that we were going to try and work on together. Um, and the Olympics being right at the forefront of that. Um, so we've probably been, or we have been working together with them about, for about 12 months now. Um, and also a, a, an agency that were highly recommended to us um, from sort of within the, the inner circle of the IOC, um, uh, a company called Weber Shamwick, who've got worldwide, off, worldwide offices, lots of worldwide offices, um, and their main, one of their main ones um, based in Paris. So it was a really good fit for us to, to work with those guys to actually get some kind of, you know, advice along the way, you know, the kind of PR and marketing, you know, the big PR kind of agency that, that specializes in, you know, um, bidding, cities bidding and, and sports bidding. So, so they've got um, their, their ear to the ground, so to speak, I, I guess. Being, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're so they're sort of plugged into that kind of IOC kind of world, and also, you know, from a PR perspective, and figuring out you know what 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 we need to do, and looking at what everyone else is doing. Um, so we, we've entered into this kind of reasonably, it's it's a reasonably complex landscape this time, in that 
the IOC have um, the IOC have now given the biddings or the, the host cities, you know, uh, the option of having some sports that they can choose, um, which is all well and good. But they sort of they can choose them, but they've 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 been given certain parameters, so they've still got to be within kind of IOC's agenda twenty twenty kind of over, overview. Um, and something that they've called the new norm, which is like the extension of that, where they've sort of drilled down into Agenda 2020 and highlighted a few kind of areas that they really need to focus on. Um, so Paris Paris 2024 is obviously the first target, um, but we have to keep kind of half an eye on on LA 28. Um, right. you know, it's, it's not... We don't want to be in the game for just, we don't want to be in the Olympics for just one game. We want to try and make some sort of, you know, make the case for actually being in there. Permanent. You know, much more yeah. of a term kind of view. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we've, we're pulling together presentations and, you know, we're, we're, we're quite clear on all of the things that we need to, you know, to, to, to pass on to Paris 24. Um, they've got a few... There's a few fun things that they have to adhere to. And I think one of the, one of the trickiest parts that they're going to have to deal with, um, and we actually fit in quite well to this, is that they, they've been limited to 10,500 athletes for their, for their games. Um, ah, yeah. To put that into perspective, Tokyo's Olympic Games has got the, you know, it's got the five extra sports in there with baseball, softball, um, karate, sport climbing, skateboarding, and um missing one missing um balls and dancing no no surfing (laughs) (laughs) Um, and they and they um they're at 11,100 athletes so somewhere along the line they've got to fit in some new sports and lose 600 athletes so that is a really tough situation um you know they've they've constantly got to look at budgets and how affordable a sport is to include. And obviously, we're you know we can we can, we can be put in front of the Eiffel Tower. You know we can be put in front of any of their climate buildings, and we can we can do that at a, at a pretty low cost. Um, the equality You've side. Got of plenty to uh, to present in that regard. I mean, we're uh, all, all the great venues that we uh, that we have on tour. So absolutely, yeah, and that's a really big uh, that's a really big selling point for us. Um, yeah. I guess, uh, Alex, one of the, um, in uh, your year-end review last year, I was reading uh, one of the accomplishments that you were most proud of was the increase in prize money whilst lowering the, uh, the gender pay gap. So uh, yeah. I guess that, that would fit well, too, uh, uh, in terms of uh, maybe what the IOC might be looking at uh, uh, as well. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, and I think we're one of the few sports to have, to have really addressed that um, and we've addressed it well, right at you know at the top end, and that's now filtering down lower and lower as well. Um, so there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of um, there's a lot of positives, and there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons to include squash. Um, I think one of the other one of the other differences this time around um, is uh, that that we never had the opportunity of doing before is that squash was actually in the in the Youth Olympic Games. Um, oh yeah, in Buenos, Buenos Aires. Aires. In, uh, yeah, that's right. In uh, in October. Mm-hmm. Um, and how how did and that play out for you? It was yeah. It was it was um, it was obviously a showcase sport. Um, so there were no there were no medal opportunities. Um, but we were we were put right, or the court was put right in a kind of a an interesting kind of part of the a part of the uh, the village where 
there was a lot of people walking by and there was a, it was there was a lot of activity around there um and and a big a huge plus for us actually was that we made sure that we got the um we got the interactive front wall there so okay. the the guys from fun with balls um were really supportive in in making sure that that happened and and we got it all over to buenos aires um and it looked fantastic and it made it made it you know there were t- there were queues and queues of kids queuing up to actually go on the court and play with it and try it and you know the engagement of the youth was 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 incredible um so and I, and I think all of the all of the squash players all of the all of the all of the youngsters that went you know had a fantastic time and they they were they were brilliant ambassadors for the sport um so we had a real kind of i think that had a real kind of we actually were able to get closer to the IOC and the members and and the staff and whatnot and they actually saw squash you know for, for what it was for the you know in a really positive light um really for the first time because you know normally you, you just it's press releases or it's you know you're just trying to get it within the media but that was the first time where they actually really understood what it was that we could deliver so i think that's a that's a huge difference now yeah well fingers crossed uh let's hope uh the upcoming bid uh goes well and uh it sounds sounds like uh, things are, are are ready to go in terms of presenting it. So uh, all the best in that regard. Yes. Yeah. I know uh, well, one of the initiatives in terms of um, of the youth uh, generating ideas from the youth and getting them more involved is this new Squash Forward initiative that you have uh, upcoming. Um, Alex, could you give us a little bit of background on that and how things are developing there? What's what it is exactly? Yeah, so so squash forward was um, it's a way of us kind of connecting with the younger players. Certainly on the on the tour now, we've got a lot more juniors that kind of join the rankings and join PSA with a view to view to getting a head start in terms of getting getting onto the tour and getting getting up the rankings. Um, and squash forward was a way of us kind of we've got um, Nora Shabini's on there as a as a as a as a chairwoman and um, Diego Elias is is the is the is the other sort of chairperson on there. So oh, great. we want them to kind of engage with the you know the kind of thirteen to nineteen year olds and actually figure out you know what they think the future of squash looks like. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've had various kind of meetings and interviews and and just trying to sort of do some workshops for them to kind of come up with some ideas that we can we can look to we can look to implement over the next kind of five to 10 years. Um, and it's really interesting talking to them about it. Obviously they're, they're in that generate, they're in that probably first generation that's grown up with, you know, to access a lot of squash. Um, as in, you know, it's all on squash TV and it's all on, all online. Um, so one of their first ones was actually more and more use of the technology. So, mm-hmm. you know, track shot accuracy and more winners, you know, things like that, you know, using video review, um, developing that. So it's a lot more kind of broadcast friendly. Yeah. Um, one of their next points was they, and it's interesting that, that they've mentioned this is, is talking about the accessibility of the game. Um, and the, you know, the growth and impact of emerging squash programs for sort of the disadvantaged communities and the concept of having more kind of public squash courts. Obviously we've got that, that's the guys have done that yeah. over in over in New York, but it would be amazing to to you know any any sport you know if you want to play any sport, it's all about you know where can you play and you know, is it affordable and yeah. or consistent. Um, another one was 
um, working on programs to include squash um, in schools a lot more kind of you know making that a bit widespread um, well they've made huge inroads in uh, on the eastern uh, in the eastern US uh, apparently yeah. yeah yeah I mean programs over there are US is obviously one of my, one of the biggest markets now in squash and the, and the growth over there is in, is incredible. Um, yeah. So, you know, being able to, being able to replicate, you know, wherever there is success, being able to replicate those kind of, those kind of schemes really. Well, it sounds uh, like, uh, sounds like uh, squash is in good hands in the future. They've got some good ideas uh, uh, there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's important to us. I think we're going to, we're going to put something out a bit more kind of formally soon as well and and actually then figure out what the next steps on all of these things are um you know it's certainly great for the for the PSA board of directors to 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 have these things kind of sent across to them and you know for them to you know figure out how we actually implement them but um like you say no it, it does feel it does feel like we're in safe hands um having seen the British Junior Open obviously we we, we put that out on we put that out on uh facebook and squash tv um yeah. and i just thought that the, i thought that the level was absolutely incredible amazing um, yeah, very good men uh, girls and boys and uh, a real global uh, representation uh, straight yeah. through to the the you know the contending uh, rounds yeah yeah it's it's it, it to me it made it look like the, the sport was 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 gonna just keep you know going go from strength to strength really um you know the level was amazing but you know the 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 sportsmanship you know certainly in the i mean i think my particular favorite was the boys under 13 final you know and the sportsmanship they certainly could have taught me in power a little bit well yeah i mean that, that's another topic for another day but uh i mean that that i mean obviously the the guys that are playing right now the top guys sure baggy uh, Cole, uh, Ali Farag, all of those guys, they get on so well. They play, you know, relatively a, a very fair brand of squash, uh, uh, and that rubs off, obviously. It's being, it's rubbing off, obviously. I think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like you said, it's, it's the boys and the girls as well. The, mm. it was, it was, it was exciting literally all across the board. So yeah, it's my so. microcosm of the pro game. I mean, the, the ladies' game is, uh, just as exciting as the guys right now. So, <laughs> It is, if not more, <laughs> yeah. Now, before you go, Alex, I know you've been great with your time. You got to run, but I've, I, I'd, I'd like to just ask you a little bit about, uh, you know, th there's a lot of talk out there, uh, even on squash TV, uh, and obviously you're, you're, you, you watch squash TV, and you've heard some of the the criticism, particularly uh, in terms of officiating, uh, the likes, uh, uh, even your own commentary guys, Joey, uh, uh, Paul Johnson, Lee, even Lee, who who's uh, who heads up the officiating. Uh, uh, initiative on the PSA side. Nick Matthew and Rob Owen have been on my podcast as well, just sort of uh, questioning some of the maybe new new uh, let stroke rules that, that seem to be in place or new ways of looking at lets and strokes. So I'm just wondering um, uh, what, what your view on this, and obviously you, you've heard some of the criticisms and uh, how you go about or your team go about sort of uh, addressing it or do you address it um it's 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 one of those topics that 
I think even in five, ten years' time, when when we do when we become more successful in it, I think there'll still be people critical of of certain decisions and and the way the way things happen. But I, I think one of the toughest, or there's a couple of tough parts to it. One one is the consistency, um, and it's the consistency of the the officials that not only within one event, but what what will happen very invariably is that you know we'll go from we'll go from the U.S. Open with you know ten or twelve officials there. Um, and kind of you're almost starting again from the year before sometimes um, and you'll, you'll sort of get into it and partway through the week things will get better and they'll settle down. Um, by the end of the week, you're pretty much all kind of sorted and all facing in the same direction. And then you'll pick up and you'll go next week to Hong Kong and then you've got another, you've got almost got a brand new set of officials yeah. and, and sort of feel like we have to start again. Um, so, a couple of, so a couple of things that we're doing well. The World Squash Officiating is is a, is a program that we're we're we're, we're setting up sort of um, with with World Squash, um, and I think we all underestimated how big a how big a kind of project it is. Um, but we're really almost going back right back to square one in terms of you know what are the different what are the different levels you know what are the what are the materials that everyone's got to kind of look at and view um and then you know how do we actually want the game kind of refereed you know consistently you know across the across the globe um so we're right in the we're right in the process now of um we're literally just about to start building a website that will have an absolute ton of clips you know um from real kind of beginner basic ones really super easy lets and strokes and whatnot all the way through to most kind of complex kind of examples um and within the website then there's going to be you know a big kind of educational element and a big testing element so that hopefully in time whenever you know if, if you suddenly you know you're a club player club player in in league 10 in wherever you know you can go on there and learn some pretty basic stuff mm-hmm. and then if you want to get into refereeing that would be somewhere something that would lead you kind of through and hopefully and hopefully have the resource to actually become a you know a decent referee yeah so that's what we're doing in in the kind of the background which with a much more of a longer term kind of view um and then in the short term it's <laughs> it falls largely on kind of lee lee drew's shoulders to you know whilst he's at events to just try and, try and well, get everyone kind of face, facing yeah. <laughs> facing in the right direction yeah uh, well one uh, yeah. one idea that i thought uh, I mean, there, everyone's got a great idea when it comes to, to this kind of stuff. But uh, Nick Matthew had mentioned uh, that uh, in order to sort of avoid any confusion or any sort of uh, surprises on the court, why not have uh, the referee meet with the players like they do in, say, uh, boxing or, or yeah. before, the, before they actually go on court and just say, this is what I'm looking for. This is, what, this is a let. This is a stroke, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that, that seemed like a, a sensible and doable uh, approach to me. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, it's a decent one. I know, I know, in I know, um, I know that in rugby union they do a very good job of that, and I think they tend to do it. I think they tend to do it sort of at the start of every season. You know, when new rules and stuff come in, and they, you know, they get the, the they get the referees together yeah. with the players and discuss those sorts of things. I think that I. I I think the other main part to it is, and, and this is where it's difficult, is that there's just a, you know, until until we make refereeing, you know, a profession, you know, or a you know a well-paid kind of job, I think it's always going to be difficult to for yeah. us to get that kind of get that consistency. So is that you know, something? Um, 
that could be in in the cards or is that absolutely much? yeah no, absolutely yeah um i mean we're hoping that you know hopefully something like the website will be you know if we can create this a sort of a license you know when we get you know tens of thousands of people on there you know all paying a you know a fairly nominal amount to, you know if it can generate enough income and if it can generate enough of a commercial output in the first place we can we can push all of those funds back into back into refereeing and make it kind of pay for itself um but we definitely we definitely want to make it a bit more of an attractive option um and then look to have you know probably a smaller pool of you know through and through professional referees um and then they they would then be able to support you know the up and coming ones um but yeah it's, it's certainly a topic that we could you know not a it's certainly it's certainly one we've got a lot of work to do on but it also feels like we've actually done or you know a reasonable amount of progress has been made absolutely um, yeah i mean uh, i think one of the reasons why the players are so well behaved is because they have uh, a little less griping to do with this uh, new video review system and, and the way that that the improvements within that i think yeah it's definitely i mean it's nice having that safety net um you know for the for the players um i think i think another big part of another big part of that is that by the time and i know when we first introduced it uh, a, a really interesting offshoot was that even sometimes when the when the review came back and it wasn't right you know everyone's pulses had come down everyone had calmed down there wasn't that kind of explosive element to you know a bad decision or you know the wrong decision you know, your pulse goes from 180 back down to kind of 150 and it's all yeah, nice yeah, It gives you a bit of time to sort of calm down, I guess, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, but if, you know, if you were there and back in the days when it was, you know, Power and myself and, and whoever it was at the time or Hilly would, would have been a good example. You know, your pulse is going through the roof. Yeah, it's, Davide it's, Bianchetti. Yeah, he was very entertaining. Yeah, yeah. On just basic lets, that would be a pretty entertaining to see. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, well, Alex, um, I know you've been uh, fantastic with your time, and I think, uh, 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 yeah, it's o overtime uh, based on what I promised and what you delivered. So thank you so much uh, for coming on the podcast. It was really, uh, really enjoyed the chat, and I uh, hope we can do it again. Surely. Yeah, thanks, Jerry. No, it was fun. Good to thank speak you, to you. Sir. Yeah, great speaking to you. Well, that was great stuff, uh, Alex. Thanks uh, to Alex again uh, for coming on to the podcast. Really enjoyable t uh, chat, really insightful stuff there. And uh, definitely the PSA, uh, as we mentioned in the uh, beginning, uh, making great inroads in a lot of areas. They've got their work cut out for them in several other areas, but he's embracing uh, the challenges ahead. And uh, all the best to him and the team. Uh, they're doing a great job, in my opinion, and I think uh, you know most uh, most of us in the squash community would agree with that. So, uh, again, thanks so much, Alex, for coming on uh, to the podcast. Now, uh, we've got some good ones coming up. In fact, uh, I've got uh, another one. I'm doing another podcast uh, tomorrow, so stay tuned for that one. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy it. Uh, another uh, guest that we've had on, I think it was about this time last year. You'll, you'll see uh, tomorrow, though. Um, now, if we take a look at the calendar, the squash calendar, I think things are starting to really... Uh, open up a bit now full full steam ahead uh the 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 tour seems to be in full swing now across the board men's and women's uh some big money events as well as some uh, challenger and some uh 
some of the lower uh, end uh, money events. Uh, we've got, uh, mo well, uh, more recently, uh, one that just finished, the Cleveland Classic with uh, Nor Al-Tayeb uh, winning that one over Testney Evans in four games. So congrats to both of them uh, on that result. Uh, <clears throat> the PSL uh, League in, in, uh, in England is uh, kicking off, I think, this week. Uh, the Pittsburgh Open, uh, the 50K event in Pittsburgh, uh, would love to be there for that one. I wonder what squash is like in the, the Steel City. Uh, my favorite NFL football team there, by the way. They missed the playoffs this year, unfortunately. Uh, Bankers Hall, uh, the Bankers Hall Pro-Am kicking off. That's one of the longest-running pro events in Canada, if I'm not mistaken. We'll, we'll get a chance to ask uh, the event uh, organizer uh, tomorrow because he'll be on the podcast. There you go. I just gave it away. Uh, Bob Ballinger, hopefully we'll have him on tomorrow, and we'll talk about uh, Bankers Hall, the Pro-Am event uh, in Calgary, my birthplace, uh, by the way. Um, and we're only a few weeks uh, away from the, the Million Dollar World Championship uh, event. I didn't really get the chance to ask uh, Alex about uh, that, but the you know I wanted to, but um, ran out of time, but the big million dollar pro, uh, pro event, in uh, World Open event in Chicago, uh, equally shared uh, with the men's and ladies, so 500,000 for each. Uh, that's coming up and that should be really exciting and a great, um, a great addition to, uh, of the prize money uh, there. Uh, uh, equally uh, uh, shared by the men and women, so that that's fantastic. Now, uh, now I just wanted to talk uh, before I go. I just wanted to talk briefly about a switch that I made uh, in my own game. I did. Uh, I had been using the Harrow Spark, the JP Harrow uh, Spark, for several years, and really, it was one of those cases where uh, you know technology had had. Um, gotten ahead of the racket that I was using, but I continued to use the, the Spark. I really liked the feel of it. And uh, just maybe two, three years ago, I, I maybe it was two years ago, a year and a half ago, I stopped uh, using it and I went over. I wanted to try the Technofiber, so I went with the 130, um, the Technofiber CarboFlex, the one that Norel Sherbini was uh, using before the one she's using now. And um, you know, I strung up with uh, obviously the the technofiber, uh, the green string. At uh, I usually string it at about 25, 26 pounds. Uh, it was okay. I real, you know, it, it definitely you know struck the ball well. But where I, I felt it was, uh, it didn't have the same feel for me that the, the spark had. Um, and so uh, after maybe six, seven months, I went and I tried the, the Dunlop uh, Precision Elite. I couldn't find, it, it was tough to find any Harrows around, uh, around here in, in the UAE at uh, you know, a decent uh, price, or they're way overpriced here. But um, Dunlop uh, Precision Elite, I went with that. That seemed comparable, and I'm really enjoying that racket. It's the same, uh, basically the same weight, same shape, same feel, as the spark which I like and uh, and I'm really enjoying that racket so uh, my racket review for the month I, I'm going to try maybe I'll, I'll do this I'll, I'll do a racket review uh, we'll get some other rackets on the go um, <clears throat> at the club and we'll, we'll get we'll see how they play but uh, my recent racket uh, review uh, based on uh, 
what I've been using the last little while. Uh, I'll, I'll just say that uh, the, the Harrow Spark uh, for me is a great racket and that, that ranks right up there as one of the better rackets that I've ever, ever had. Uh, not too far behind that one, obviously. Uh, uh, for me, the, the Precision Elite Dunlop, I'm using it now. Really like it. It's comparable to the, uh, the Harrow Spark in weight, in feel for me. I really, I really, really like the way the ball uh, comes off the racket and it's got the same sort of balance, stiff frame, uh, the Spark has a stiffer frame, which I like, and the, the, the Precision Elite isn't quite as stiff, but it's got, got the same feel, it, and uh, the ball comes off that racket nicely. And the, the Tech Carboflex 130, I'm afraid to say, uh, finished uh, number three uh, of the three, although it was a decent racket, nothing wrong with it, but it just didn't have that same feel. I'm not, uh, I don't like the larger, I guess the larger teardrop, it's not really a teardrop, I'm not sure of the right term for it, but the, the large teardrop type uh, rackets don't really do it for me. I don't get the same feel that I do with the more sort of a traditional, I guess you could say, shaped uh, uh, rackets of the day that we have today. So. There's my racket uh, review of the week. A little plug there for, for Harrow uh, and Dunlop. And, uh, you know, not, nothing wrong with the Tech uh, Carboflex. Obviously, uh, you've got the two, uh, well, the number one player and the number two player, uh, men's and women's respectively, using them. So they're uh, obviously great rackets as well. But uh, anyways, everyone, uh, thanks for listening to the podcast. And uh, there's another one upcoming as I mentioned, uh, hopefully we'll have Bob Ballinger on uh, to talk uh, Bankers Hall, uh, the pro event, pro-am event that's coming up. And again, thanks to Alex Goff for coming on. Really enjoyed that. Enjoy your squash and uh, have a great day. Goodbye now.